If your days or weeks or months left on earth were few, if you were coming toward the end of your life, and you were called to write a letter to a pastor, to a younger pastor, a friend, what would you write to encourage him? What would you write to exhort him and to spur him on in his calling? Well, today, uh, as we offer a farewell to Pastor Lucas, Maggie, uh, their family, as fits this occasion, I want to draw his attention and my attention as younger, relatively speaking, uh, pastors, uh, but all of our attention as followers of Christ to Paul's last words that we have recorded uh, in the New Testament as he, as very near toward the end of his life, writing to a younger pastor, uh, Timothy, to learn from these words. The text is 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's verses 6 through 18. 2 Timothy 1, uh, 6 through 18. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. Paul writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and discipline or self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and to which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You're aware that all those who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Uh, These words come in the last letter that we have uh, recorded Uh, by Paul in the New Testament. By the time he writes this, of course, he's already completed his three missionary journeys, which uh, most scholars uh, agree would have meant uh, a total of over 10,000 miles of of travel, not by car. Uh, A final journey to Rome, uh, where he was imprisoned a first time for a couple of years, recorded in the last chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 28, during which time he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 
time not wasted. He was then released from prison and likely wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. He's imprisoned a second time in Rome, and these words we've just read are what he wrote while in prison. So, Paul has come to the end. He says in chapter 2 of this letter, verse 8, Remember Christ, risen from the dead, as preached in my gospel, for which I suffer, bound with chains as a criminal. And outside of our Lord Jesus, there may not be a single figure in all of the Bible more beloved than Paul. Maybe David would be up there. There's so much to admire and to love and to learn from the Apostle Paul. So passionate. A planter of churches, a mentor, a disciple maker, shaper of men and women, a sufferer for the gospel, author of 13 letters in the New Testament. Yet one of the most important things we learn from Paul, I think easily overlooked, is how much local church ministry gave shape uh, to his life. There's a lot I do not have in common, I'm sure, uh, with the Apostle Paul, but I can say confidently that outside my wife and my family, it is serving as a pastor in the local church that has given the most shape uh, to my own faith, and for that I'm grateful. Even though Paul was coming to the end of his life, as he says in Chapter 4, verse 6, it was read earlier in the New Testament reading that he's already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of his departure has come. But where's his focus? The eyes of his heart are upon the kingdom, upon the church, and upon this young man, Timothy, to pass on the baton of the gospel to encourage him in his calling. And so I want us to see some specific aspects to this calling that Paul speaks about. The calling we have as a pastor or an elder or a deacon, most of all, our calling as a Christian. So first of all, our calling as Christians, as believers, is purposed by God. He says in verse 9 of our text that the Lord saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ before the ages began, which has now been manifested through the appearing of Christ. Think about Timothy. Timothy had significant influences in his life that contributed to the shaping of his life and his faith and his calling. And Paul reminds him and reminds us of that in the verse just prior to our text, in verse 5 of chapter 1 where he says, I'm reminded of your faith, Timothy, that dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm confident dwells in you. How many of us uh, here have come to faith through the instrument of a mom or a dad or a grandparent? I bet many. But behind these instruments is an ultimate cause. It is the calling of God. A calling to faith is a, a divine origin. It's even from a place or a time uh, in eternity, Paul says, before the ages began. This holy calling which would be granted to us was in or with Christ before time itself existed as we know it. It's remarkable. Timothy needed to know that and remember that. 
to remember that his calling was upon a much greater and firmer foundation than his own personality or his own abilities or his own knowledge or his own skills. How natural it is as we live after the Lord to fall back into that way of thinking that our effectiveness is ultimately the result of our own skills, our own abilities. Both because of of Timothy's temperament and the volatile situation in Ephesus, uh, Timothy may have been inclined toward a kind of timidity, a timidness. We read in verse 7, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and discipline. That word in the ESV, I think translated there for fear, is a word that only occurs once in, the, in all the New Testament. But you do see it outside of the Bible, outside of the New Testament used, and when it is used, it's often referring to a kind of timidity or even cowardness or shyness. Paul did not want Timothy's temperament, if he was inclined toward timidity or shyness, to get the best of him, especially in his context. John Calvin says this, Paul is exhorting Timothy and us to rouse and awaken himself to active deeds of valor. For the Lord does not wish him to perform his office coldly and without vigor, but to press on powerfully, relying on the efficacy of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Of course, there's some very good news uh, for us here, because God does call the timid. He calls the weak. He calls the vulnerable. He calls the unlearned, like the disciples. He calls the shy. Anybody experience shyness in their life? Too shy to raise our hands even? Anybody still experience uh, shyness? I certainly did and do. As a child and youth, I was so shy in the classroom, I bet when the teacher called on me, they couldn't even know if I was going to respond. <laughs> Why would God call a shy person to the pulpit? I've often wondered. But we do know our God likes to do that kind of thing. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1? Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise, not many of you learned, not many of you strong. But God chose what is weak in the world, so that no man may boast in his presence. Now, I think critical to Paul's words about calling is that he's speaking in a way we can say about two different callings. Paul said God saved us and called us to a holy calling. What is this calling? Fundamentally, it's the calling to know God in Jesus Christ, to coming to faith in him. As Jesus speaks, as the, as the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice, they listen and they follow. This is the call to saving faith and redemption. But this calling involves another call, particularly in Timothy's context. I think it's referring perhaps as well, certainly by application, to your vocational call. In Timothy's case, as a pastor, that's his... Uh, Lot, that's his station in life at this time. That's his context, but what about yours? 
Perhaps the call to teach, to engineer, to nursing, to education, to a particular trade, to homemaking, child-rearing. We have a vocational call. God places us in the world with a, a task, a calling to carry out our Christian faith. Just recently, a Covenant College grad said that at the beginning of every new school year, I believe, uh, the faculty or professors would stress the capital C calling and the lowercase c calling, that we've all been called, capital C, to know God in, in Jesus Christ. But we all also have a lowercase c, a calling to serve the Lord in the context in which He has placed us. The late Edmund Clowney, uh, in his work called to the ministry, great little book, spoke of our two names. Our first name or calling is to sonship. We bear the name of God. We are His sons and daughters. We all bear that name Christian. But then he gives us a second name. Unique to us. Just like he said to Simon, Simon, I shall call you Peter, rock, and called him vocationally in a particular direction. Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 62, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. You shall be called by a new name. We've all been called by the Lord to know Him and then to carry out that particular calling in the context in which He's placed us. The second aspect of this calling that Paul speaks about in writing to Timothy is that it is a calling shaped by and worthy of suffering. Verse 8, he says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by God's power. And then he says in verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. There's a lot of causes, potentially, to suffering. At varying levels, the loss of work, an illness, loss of a loved one, a deep anxiety or depression. These are trials that God will ordain and use for His people. It's, it's His providential hand. But the suffering that Paul speaks of here is because of the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel. This is suffering that results from being a Christ follower. And it's so much easier to suffer when you're in the mainstream. When you're in the majority. When your faith and way of life is shared by many. But here's Timothy, and this in some ways fledgling church in Ephesus, a difficult place for him. This is a city bent on magic and the occult, a big city. It would have been tempting when the pressure came, when the possibility of persecution came, unless one hails Caesar as Lord, unless you tone down your messaging of the gospel or of this Messiah to keep quiet, to keep their faith a secret matter tempting. Just a couple of years prior, while in a previous imprisonment in Rome, I mentioned in Acts 28, is when Paul wrote that letter to the church in Ephesus to where Timothy has been placed. 
And a central theme in Ephesians is the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. There in chapter 1, toward the end. That He is Lord over all earthly powers, earthly authorities, all rulers. Timothy and that church is going to need to remember that very important reality because it does not always appear that way to our eyes, does it? It doesn't always feel that Christ is reigning supremely. And what is Paul's exhortation to Timothy when the pressure's on? It's not, just wait. Christ will have the last word. He will have the last word. That's true. But his exhortation to Timothy is what? Share in suffering. He says, don't be ashamed of my imprisonment. Why? Imprisonment, that's a picture of humiliation. Paul, in a sense, bound. Unable to be free to minister as he would want. And also, don't be ashamed of our Lord's crucifixion. There's another picture of humiliation. Now, he's saying, I want you to walk in this path. This is not only the path of our Lord Jesus, this is the path for growth. Uh, There's a principle I was reminded of recently, uh, referred to as anti-fragility. You heard of that? It's it's seen in uh, different areas of of life, uh, in biology, engineering, physics, health. We think about uh, the immune system. Simply put, it's a response to a stressor that leads to greater strength. If you take a, a, a wine glass, something very fragile, and you drop it onto a hardwood floor or tile, it's likely going to shatter. It's going to break. It's fragile. If you take an empty water bottle and you drop it on that same floor, what happens? Maybe bounces. It doesn't break, but it doesn't become any stronger. God designed us in part to grow and be sanctified through exposure to trial and tribulation and suffering. This this is the way and path of growth, among other things. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God has called His people to a path of trial. Because central to his purpose is the forming and the formation of a people who would be like Christ. Perfecting us, maturing us through suffering. Third, God's call upon our lives centers on gospel proclamation. He says, share in suffering for the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. We heard the charge read earlier that comes in chapter 4. And at the front of that list, I charge you, Paul says to him, in the presence of God and of Christ who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. The church of my youth, the church I grew up in, uh, outside of that building uh, was one verse, 2 Corinthians 4-5, For we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord. But Jesus Christ as Lord. Christ was the substance of Paul's ministry. 
this gospel in Christ. That in the person of the Lord Jesus, a new age had dawned. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't a mere philosophy of man. It wasn't a method that was being presented. It is a person held forth. That through Him, this new age had come. This Lord and King had come to begin restoring all of creation, beginning with a people for whom He would bear their sin and guilt, reconcile them to God, and then through whom this gospel would go forth. There's a wonderful little book, I have it here, called The Gospel Ministry. Before it was a book, it was actually a sermon uh, preached by a man at his own ordination service. It was a way for him, Thomas Foxcroft, in 1717, to remind himself of what he was called to. And in that sermon and in that book, he says this, Christ is the grand subject which ministers and believers of the gospel should insist upon in their preaching and ministry. And then he said, in all their ministry labors, pastors and Christians should make the conversion and the edification of men in Christ their governing view and sovereign aim. I'm sure most of us have been to a buffet breakfast or a buffet dinner. At a buffet, you have options. Sometimes those are difficult choices. What do I feel like? That's what you're going based on, right? What do I feel like here? What do I want today? You've got to weigh it out. The church is not a buffet offering to people whatever they feel like, whatever their fancy. Whatever ministry we hold forth, whether it's discipleship groups, VBS ministry, Sunday school, public worship, fellowship gatherings, the substance of that is to be our Lord Jesus Christ. The fellowship we share as the body of Christ, the Word of Christ, the Spirit of Christ. Ultimately, we have a single substance that we hold forth. This person and His glorious work. In Christ, you have a friend who never leaves you. In Christ, you have a shepherd who guides you. In Christ, you have a Lord who watches over you. In Christ, you have a conquering king who has overcome death itself. In Christ, you have a new family to whom you belong. In Christ, you may have peace in times of trouble. In Christ, you have the Spirit who sanctifies and grows you. In Christ, you have a glorious inheritance that is coming. Finally, God's calling in our lives is going to be accompanied by both rejection, but also refreshment. In verse 15 and following, Paul reminds and perhaps cautions Timothy about two individuals, Phagellus and Hermogenes. They don't appear to be false teachers, but they deserted Paul. They they withdrew uh, support at some point from Paul in a time of, of need. If you recall, at the end of the letter, he mentions a number of people and and how no one had stood by him in his defense. Either in his ministry or his arrest or imprisonment, 
these folks walked away. Timothy needed to be aware, as do we, that people are going to fail us. Maybe even reject us at times. They're going to fall short in supporting us. As he says in chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one stood by me. Some, some did stand by him, but that's how it felt. All deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. But then there will be those whom God brings into our lives who are going to refresh us. Verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. I know I can say, I'm confident, we can say as a church that Lucas and the household of the Dorados have been a refreshment to this congregation. And I'm very confident will be a refreshment to those you're going to serve in Knoxville. Who are we refreshing along this journey? And then might we know that even in times when we feel alone, when few, if any, seem to refresh and renew us, that most importantly, most of all, we know that Christ stands by us. Let's pray. Lord, how we praise You for Your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, and for the gift of the Holy Spirit, this Comforter, this One who walks with us, who indwells us. How we praise You, Lord, for Your divine voice, Your your call, Your divine call upon Your church to know You in a saving way. And then, Lord, for You to station each of Your people in a context to carry out that that greater calling of of being a Christ follower in in a particular station in life. Uh, Grant us strength and grace uh, to carry out that calling with an eye, O Lord, uh, toward You, trusting in You, uh, resting in Your sufficient mercy. We pray, Lord, that You would strengthen Your people that we would be used for Your glorious kingdom. May You call, Lord, boys and girls, men and women, further into the life of this kingdom. We pray, Lord, Your blessing on our continued time of worship as Your people and in the fellowship that we will share afterward. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. With the exception of the first hymn, uh, the other three uh, were all chosen by Lucas and the Dorados, some, some favorites of theirs. So let's stand together. We'll sing our closing hymn, uh, 246, Man of Sorrows, What a Name.
before I offer the benediction, I'm going to say a word of prayer uh, for our gathering afterward in the fellowship hall so that after the announcements are given and we make our way uh, into the fellowship hall, you can uh, grab a plate and, and you can begin uh, time together and, and eating. So let me, let me pray. Father, we're so thankful for your, uh, your provision. Most of all, for the provision that you have given in Jesus Christ, in whom we find our eternal and ultimate rest, our nourishment, that we do not live by bread alone, but but the bread from heaven, our Lord Jesus. And yet, Lord, you are gracious and generous to provide our physical needs. So we pray that you would nourish us, that you would be with us in our time of fellowship, that you would encourage all gathered in the hall, and Lord, that you would bless the Dorado family. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.